This is C-SPAN's The Weekly for Friday, August the 16th. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. The war in Afghanistan by the numbers. Several hundred thousand troops have served over the years. More than 2,000 have died. And the cost of the war estimated at $1 trillion and rising. America's involvement in that conflict began after the 9-11 attacks nearly 18 years ago. Michael O'Hanlon is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution here in Washington. He has been to Afghanistan, understands its government and its troubled history. Our conversation in just a moment. But first, here is President George W. Bush explaining why U.S. involvement there was necessary. More than two weeks ago, I gave Taliban leaders a series of clear and specific demands. Close terrorist training camps, hand over leaders of the Al-Qaeda network, and return all foreign nationals, including American citizens, unjustly detained in your country. None of these demands were met. And now, the Taliban will pay a price. By destroying camps and disrupting communications, we will make it more difficult for the terror network to train new recruits and coordinate their evil plans. President George W. Bush, nearly a month after the September 11th, 2001 attacks, and joining us in our studios is Michael O'Hanlon. He is a senior fellow of foreign policy at the Brookings Institution. Nearly 20 years later, we are still in Afghanistan. Why? Hi, Steve. Well, one reason is because nobody can think of a better option. President Obama and President Trump, two very different people and presidents by most metrics, are sort of similar on this Afghanistan question. Because ever since about 2013, President Obama was always hoping he could get out, thinking that the war was not likely to go as well as he had hoped, thinking that our interests in such a faraway mountainous uh, you know, underdeveloped country were limited, and that therefore it really at some strategic level couldn't be worth the trouble. But then when you face the reality of pulling out entirely and leaving that area from which the 9-11 attacks were initially planned to the potential takeover by a group that might again affiliate with an ISIS or al-Qaeda, it doesn't look so smart to get out altogether. And you could argue ever since about 14, for the last five years or so, that that you're calling still the ongoing war, that this looks more like a robust advisory and limited operations mission, sort of like what we did in Vietnam, let's say in 62, 63, before we got in there and sort of officially got after uh, the Viet Cong ourselves. So a lot of people would say the Vietnam War was eight years long, 65 to 73. But I think the Afghanistan war, if it really now is 18 years long, these last five years have looked more like the pre-combat phase of the Vietnam War. It's not anything like a large-scale American kinetic operation. We still lose people. We still spend money. We still incur risk. But compared to the risk of a complete pullout, this seems like the least bad option to most people. And Obama and Trump both consistently have said – Next year, maybe I'll pull out altogether. And at some point, maybe President Trump or his successor will. But so far, the risks associated with getting out altogether look greater than the risks of having 10,000 to 15,000 personnel doing very limited, although still dangerous, combat operations. I want to come back and have you explain that in just a moment. But what is remarkable is how the Vietnam War continues to shape American foreign policy and military operations today. 
No doubt. I mean, you know, this was the first war we couldn't figure out how to end successfully and really in our nation's history. Korea was not a great victory either, but it was three years of frustration and violence, not eight or 12. And and so in that regard, Vietnam taught us we can't always be successful with these kinds of complex counterinsurgency and state building missions. And uh, we can't always be successful just because we are the most powerful country on earth. There's an element of politics and of local uh, you know, difficulty in these conflicts that makes them in some ways impervious to our influence. And our goals have to be a little more limited. And hopefully we can limit our means as well, limit our exposure and our investment. Uh, and I think that's the lesson that collectively both parties have typically learned in the last six, eight, ten years. It's why we're not talking about doing another Iraq or Afghanistan in a place like Syria. We just don't think it's worth the investment. So we'd rather manage some of these problems as opposed to trying to solve them all together, because solving them turns out to be a bridge too far. And so in Afghanistan, I don't think anybody has the delusion we're going to wind up victorious in some old-fashioned sense of the word, but helping the Afghan government sort of stay on its feet as long as possible, and maybe over time we catch a break. Maybe Pakistan stops supporting the Taliban as much as they have been. Maybe the Afghan government does get stronger and come together more cohesively. And in the meantime, we're sort of trying to contain the problem and play for time, as opposed to believing there is either a victory strategy or an exit strategy that's easily attainable. So when experts from the administration say, how do you contain the policy, whether militarily or diplomatically, what do you tell them? Well, I think we have. You know, we have 15,000 troops there now. That's 85 percent less than the peak. That is certainly compared to any of the wars you and I have been invoking in this conversation so far, a very modest number of Americans. But still 15,000. It's 15,000 and probably 10 to 15 fatalities a year for one reason or another occurring uh, among the Americans who were there. Uh, but you compare that to what we've seen ISIS do in the Middle East in 2014 to what we saw al-Qaeda do uh, in our own homeland in 2001, the kinds of things that can happen when you just completely take your hands off these conflicts, uh, those outcomes look worse. So are there parallels to U.S. troops along the DMZ and American troops in Afghanistan? So if you're referring to the Korean DMZ today, I wouldn't push that analogy too far. People will sometimes say, look at Korea. We stayed in Korea. Well, it's now been you know, 60 some 60 years, plus years. Uh, but in uh, but in the first 30, we did not get to a very happy place in terms of where South Korea itself was. It was a dictatorship most of that time. For much of that time, it lagged North Korea economically, sort of impossible to imagine now. Uh, its human rights record against its own people was poor. And Jimmy Carter and some other people thought about pulling out of that alliance. But we stuck with it, and over time, Korea became a democracy and the 11th most powerful economy on earth. Now, I don't know anybody who's saying Afghanistan might follow the Korea mold, uh, but the idea of sticking with a difficult partner over many years and even decades, that's where the Korea analogy may be useful to a certain extent. I wonder if you could, Michael O'Hanlon, take a step back and explain Afghanistan as a country, its politics, its topography, and its different regions. So it's about the same age as the United States in terms of an official uh, concept of being a state, but it's not anywhere near like the United States in terms of cohesion. I guess you could think of it in, it has 34 provinces, but they're not particularly meaningful themselves. It probably should be thought of as having uh, 
a, a rural-urban divide, one way to think about Afghanistan. Some people would also say it's sort of got about five main centers, the capital city of Kabul, and then Kandahar in the south, the famous former Taliban stronghold, Jalalabad in the east, Mazar-e-Sharif in the north, uh, Kunduz, uh, you know, there are a couple of other big cities, Herat in the west. So depending on how you divvy it up, it's four, five, six major regions and four major ethnic groups with the Pashtun, uh, the Pashtun and the Tajik being the two predominant, uh, but also the Uzbeks and the Hazara. Uh, it's not quite as ethnically polarized as Iraq. It's not quite as Sunni Shia. You know, there's not quite as much animosity across those groups. But the Pashtun part is complicated because most Pashtuns actually live in Pakistan. And so that's where the Pakistani role gets pretty paramount. And a lot of other ethnic groups in Afghanistan really resent Pakistan's role, the Tajiks in particular. Anyway, I'm probably confusing more than I'm helping because I'm proposing multiple ways to think about the country. But instead of just throwing out additional concepts, maybe I should come back to the one I started with, the rural-urban divide. And that may be the most powerful and important because there are Pashtun all over the country. Taliban tend to be Pashtun. So there are pockets of insurgency all over the country, but they're primarily based in some of the rural enclaves and especially in some of the mountainous enclaves that you alluded to earlier on. Uh, Pakistan is more than half uh, quite mountainous, more than half the topography. There are big plains up in the north. Uh, there are big plains to the southwest and in parts of Kandahar uh, and, and um, Helmut Province, uh, Helmut Province where the U.S. and British forces were so strong for much of the conflict. But I would say that the center of the country, Kabul, Jalalabad, Host, uh, many other areas are quite mountainous. And these often afford the Taliban and other insurgent or extremist groups sanctuary, where they can essentially operate with relative impunity. But the Taliban also operate in plain sight, because there are a number of communities where the government's role in helping the Afghan citizenry has been so limited, so weak, that the Taliban can find willing recruits, because at least the Taliban deliver a harsh but fairly quick justice when they're in charge of an area, at least they seem to have a certain amount of discipline. And we have to give our enemy credit. We don't have to like them. They're, they're not kind to women. They're not kind to minorities. But they are somewhat disciplined. And sometimes the Afghan population seems to appreciate that in contrast to a government that's often seen as corrupt and a little, a little soft. And so that's probably the best way to break down the country is that rural-urban divide and the way in which the Taliban can often find sanctuary and support in the more remote parts of the country, which in the case of Afghanistan winds up being most of the country in terms of geography and probably a third to uh, half of the population base being in the more rural areas. Based on that, how safe is the country for its citizens and how structured or organized is the military? The military is fairly structured, maybe in some ways too much. I mean, Why? some people think we built too much of an American-like model, gave them a lot of vehicles, thereby driving up their maintenance requirements, their long-term budgetary requirements. I was able to visit with President Ghani last year, and one of the things he told me is he continues to work hard to figure out how to make the Afghan military more sustainable economically, because they have so much of a Western-style organizational chart and logistics requirement system now that it's, you know, it's more expensive than they can afford themselves. So I know it's on his mind, and I think he's 
correct in that regard. In, in terms of their ability to function, uh, do operations, they've got some commanders who are very good, but they also have some commanders who are essentially political appointees or who are there because of nepotism or what have you. And so the performance of the Afghan forces is quite uneven. The individual Afghan soldier or policeman tends to be pretty brave and and uh, pretty tenacious, but the way they f- operate in formation is not always quite so impressive. As to the safety of the country, you know, there was a time when in the 2000s, let's say, after the overthrow of the Taliban, when if nothing else, the country was pretty safe. And and then even as we got into the 2008, 9, 10 period, the return of the Taliban as a fighting force, the surge under President Obama with generals McChrystal and Petraeus and Allen, even in that period of time, for the average Afghan citizen, I would still say the country was much safer, let's say, than it had been in the 1980s or 1990s. But unfortunately, things have been continually moving in the wrong direction in terms of the intensity of the fighting between the government and the Taliban. It's a quite lethal place to be if you're an Afghan soldier, if you're an Afghan policeman, or if you're a Taliban uh, partisan. They've been killing each other to the tune of probably 10 to 20,000 fatalities per year for the last few years. And that's a fairly intensive standard of violence, even by uh, analogy with other conflicts around the world. You brought up former President Barack Obama. This is what he told the country in May of 2014 at the White House. Over the last several years, we've worked to transition security responsibilities to the Afghans. One year ago, Afghan forces assumed the lead for combat operations. Since then, they've continued to grow in size and in strength while making huge sacrifices for their country. This transition has allowed us to steadily draw down our own forces from a peak of 100,000 U.S. troops to roughly 32,000 today. 2014, therefore, is a pivotal year. Together with our allies and the Afghan government, we have agreed that this is the year we will conclude our combat mission in Afghanistan. So basically, he was following up on what we saw with the surge that was put in place in 2008 at the request of Senator John McCain and the support of President George W. Bush. So where were we in 2014, 2015? Yes. So real quickly, uh, by 2008, as the surge in Iraq was starting to gradually scale back, we now had forces available that we could increase in Afghanistan. And President Bush, who spent most of his administration not putting a lot of resources into the Afghanistan mission, started himself to believe he had it to add forces. So by the summer of 2008, it was possible for Secretary of Defense Gates to say, whoever wins the election this fall is going to emphasize Afghanistan more next year. Normally, incumbent secretaries of defense don't speak about future administrations with such confidence. But McCain and Obama were both on record in 2008 saying Afghanistan needed more. So at that point, we were sort of going up from about the numbers that we're at today, sort of in the 15,000, 20,000 range, up to about 30,000 U.S. forces by the end of the Bush presidency. Then President Obama came in, spent much of 2009 changing command to Stanley McChrystal, having two major policy reviews, one of which he became very active in himself, wondering if we could increase forces further and sort of do a Iraq surge-like approach to Afghanistan. 
And that became then the, the famous conversation with General McChrystal about just how many more forces would be appropriate. Ultimately, President Obama chose sort of a midpoint out of McChrystal's uh, range of options. And then Obama gave a speech in late 2009 at West Point where he said, I'm going to go up to 100,000 U.S. forces, which you just heard him reiterate. But we're only going to stay there a short time. And by the summer of 2011, which was only 18 months in the future from when he gave the speech, we're going to start drawing down. And then by 2013, as President Obama pointed out again in the clip you just played, we were starting to try to transfer more responsibility to the Afghans. By the end of 2014, Obama had hoped that maybe we could not only declare an end to the formal combat mission, but even possibly leave, or at least leave with the vast preponderance of U.S. forces. It didn't quite turn out that way. And this is, again, where I find a sort of ironic echo between Obama and Trump that even though they're two very different people and certainly not political allies in any broader meaningful sense, on Afghanistan, they both became frustrated by the war and always sort of hoping in their gut they could make this year the last year, whatever year this year might be. But typically, we oscillate between sort of 10 and 15,000 U.S. troops on the ground at any time in Afghanistan throughout the latter Obama and now the early Trump years. President Trump has made it clear that with the Afghan peace talks that I'm sure we'll come to here briefly, that uh, he hopes we can get a resolution that allows us to leave. But even if we don't get a perfect, complete solution right away, I think President Trump is hoping to get back below that magical 10,000 U.S. force number by next November of 2020. So he can say that he's made progress in Afghanistan and reduced overall strength relative to what he inherited from Obama. But that may be a tough call. Uh, he may or may not really be able to achieve that. I think, however, that's the reasonable range for policy aspiration. We should be able to get down into sort of the, you know, thousands of U.S. forces within uh, a foreseeable time frame, two, three, four years. But on the other hand, don't listen to anything I'm saying too intently or seriously, because guys like me have been saying that for a long time, and presidents like Obama and Trump have been hoping for that for a long time. As you know, Dan Rather spent some time in Afghanistan in the 1990s when Russia was in the country. And back in 2012, the former CBS News reporter and anchor said this. There's a possibility that what has happened in South Korea being made into at least a form of democracy, a free market economy and a strong economic system, strong education system, that probably could be done in 45 or 50 years. But the question is, do we as a people, we Americans, have the will to do it? And can we afford to do it? My answer to that is no. He might have a different answer. Michael O'Hanlon, how would you answer that? Well... And is it worth the investment? I want to scale back our aspirations from where Dan Rather went. He talked about a well-functioning economy within 45 to 50 years. I think that's probably a stretch. I just talked about Korea. Korea took 45 to 50 years to get to that. The Korean people are extraordinarily unified, homogeneous. They have a tradition of 2,000 years of nationhood. Uh, they were one of the civilizations that invented the printing press. They actually had it 100 years before Europe. It took them 45 to 50 years. I love Afghans and Afghanistan, but that's not Korea. Uh, and it's multiple groups that have been living a subsistence life for a long time. 
it, they have a wonderful culture, but I don't see them becoming a well-functioning and well-educated uh, economy, even if we did stay 50 years. So that, on the one hand, that aspiration may be too high. And by the way, we've already been there for about half that time, <laughs> the 45 to 50 years that Dan Rather was alluding to. So I think we should give ourselves credit for some patience. Uh, but I think we have to get real about the objective and the realistic uh, endpoint. If we hold ourselves to Dan Rather's standard and we stay a few more years, somebody pretty soon on a show like this in 2025 is going to say, well, you know, we've been there now for a quarter century and we're no closer to Dan Rather's goals than at the beginning, so let's pull the plug. The problem is that the goals were probably too high uh, by any metric. And so I want to make sure that Afghanistan is not a sanctuary for ISIS and al-Qaeda and other extremist groups or a group that would destabilize Pakistan with its nuclear arsenal using Afghanistan as sanctuary. And I would like to see the Afghan people continually move forward so that they uh, don't succumb to an extremist political ideology, so that they live better lives for their own well-being, because we Americans believe in helping our friends. But beyond that, I'm not going to try to establish any standard that's higher than just gradual progress. And the Afghans have a long ways to go. I mean, I was a Peace Corps volunteer in the former Zaire in Democratic Republic of Congo, and that's a better analogy than Korea for where Afghanistan's going to go over what time frame. You hope that over decades they become a bit more stable, a bit more prosperous. They're not going to be one of the top performing countries in South Asia in any time frame that I can imagine. But it's still a wonderful place and a wonderful people. And if, by the way, I think we owe them a certain debt because part of why they're mired in conflict is we asked them to defeat the Soviet Union for us to win the Cold War. Let's not forget Afghanistan was semi-stable in the 50s, 60s, much of the 70s. And it wasn't until the Soviet invasion. And then we flooded the country with arms. We worked with the Pakistanis to uh, help various resistance groups. We created a lot of the chaos of different militias and warlords, all in service of defeating the Soviets, which, which the Afghan Mujahideen did. And then we left and we left them and Pakistan holding the bag for all that effort. So I think there's a certain moral debt that we should also uh, factor into this calculation. My final question is going to be on the ongoing peace talks. But first, we have had you on this network so many times. We talk about your upstate New York roots, Rochester, New York, and the vicinity. What is your background, and how did you end up at Brookings? Well, uh, Western New York's a great place to, to live and grow up, as you know. and Except in the winter. <laughs> except in the winter, which starts pretty soon. Uh, but... The, uh, you know, it's a great place because it has a combination of some decent sized cities, uh, Rochester, Buffalo, a lot of dairy farms, beautiful lakes. Um, it's really just a great part of the country. Uh, I got to work on a couple of dairy farms, which I think influenced my outlook. Went to college at Hamilton College and then Princeton, studied physics. And that gave me sort of a technical entree into the broader defense and national security world. And then Peace Corps was my interlude uh, before graduate school, which gave me more of my interest perhaps in uh, other countries and in trying to understand places like Afghanistan. And I've now been in Washington 30 years, five years with the Congressional Budget Office during a very fascinating period right after the Cold War had ended and people were trying to figure out how do we save money in the defense budget. So that gave me some more technical skills working with the budget experts there. And then I've been at Brookings for a quarter century. Great thing about Brookings is the breadth of the scholar expertise. So 
I'm a defense guy, a budget guy, a physics guy, but I've now worked with people who study East Asia, South Asia, the broader Middle East, Europe, and Africa for 25 years at Brookings, which has sort of been an ongoing education in that regard. Earlier this summer, you wrote a piece for NBC News, an opinion piece available online, and the headline is, Why Afghanistan Peace Talks Between the Taliban and the U.S. Have Promise, But More Potential Pitfalls. Explain. The simplest way to begin is to say, the Taliban is only talking with us, with the United States. They're not talking to the Afghan government. And the reason, it's quite revealing, they don't consider the Afghan government legitimate, which presumably means the only outcome of this kind of a peace process that they would consider acceptable is one that dissolves the Afghan government. And I hope that's not what we're thinking. (laughs) You know, I think there are ways to get to power sharing, ways to, over time, have a ceasefire and then put the different forces of the two sides under some common supervision, maybe with a UN observation mission or peacekeeping force, and then gradually create some commands that stitch together the different militias. But you're not going to merge these countries under one military leadership, and you're certainly not going to convince the Taliban to to, to accept positions in President Ghani's government, and you're not going to convince President Ghani that the Taliban should just replace him because they somehow won on the battlefield, what they couldn't win at the ballot box. That would be a pretty cynical approach for the United States, the world's number one champion of democracy, to take. You can debate uh, whether Ghani won a perfectly clean election in 2014. He didn't, but it was still an election, and he still had to go through a lot of campaigning, and he still had to be vetted and compete in the broader kind of process that we believe in. So for us to hand over Afghanistan to the Taliban and just ask him to step aside is absurd. And yet that is the logical implication of what the Taliban is doing. They are just talking to us, knowing that we're tired of this war, that we want to leave, hoping that perhaps this can resemble the Paris talks that ended Vietnam, where we essentially just got you know a fig leaf cover for a withdrawal that we had already decided to make. I think that's their hope. More important than my opinion, Ambassador Ryan Crocker, I think our greatest ambassador of this generation to the broader Middle East, who was twice in charge of the U.S. mission in Afghanistan, he has written that he thinks that's what the Taliban may be aspiring to. So we've got to be very suspicious uh, and, and start getting specific about what kind of power sharing could they accept. My suspicion is they may not be willing to have any kind of meaningful power sharing with Ghani. And if they're not willing to, we're going to have to start pushing them in that direction to disabuse them of the idea that President Trump is just going to walk out at some point anyway of a war that he thinks we shouldn't be in in the first place. So I'm pretty sure they read enough American media to know how much this country is tired of the Afghanistan war. They're hoping that can translate into what's essentially uh, a you know disguised form of defeat and withdrawal by the United States. That's my fear. I could be wrong. And on all that we have talked about here today, if you and I were in Kabul, not here in Washington, D.C., walking the streets, talking to average citizens, just trying to get through the day, what would we hear from them? Well, you know, most days, most parts of Kabul are like big cities in the developing world writ large. Uh, It's not like Baghdad during the worst days of the violence. You don't have huge concrete barriers up in most places. Yes, there are occasional bombings. And yes, people are scared. And by now, everybody's lost people, either in this war or the wars that came before. You know, the wars of the 1990s, the wars of the 1980s, uh, the defeat of the Soviet Union, the period uh, when the Mujahideen were, 
you know, the, the sort of the, the kite runner days when, when multiple militias were competing for control. People have been through this for a long time. There's a lot of pain, a lot of scar tissue in Afghanistan. But day-to-day life sort of looks half normal by the standards of developing countries. And most people are probably at least as worried about their economic well-being as their physical security on a given day. So I think you would hear a lot of conversation about that. You would hear uh, concern about the state of jobs and agriculture and corruption in the economy. And that's part of why they're so angry with the Afghan government. Ghani himself, I don't think, is corrupt, but a lot of the ruling class is. And I think that's part of why the Taliban has a recruiting base, less in Kabul, more in the rural countryside or other parts of the country. But there is a frustration among many Afghans that their lives are not getting better. Part of that is grounded in security concerns. Much of it, maybe most of it, is in economic and you know, quality of life concerns. We always learn so much when you join us here on C-SPAN. You're always gracious with your time. Michael O'Hanlon of the Brookings Institution, serving as the Director of Research and a Foreign Policy Fellow. Thank you for being with us. It's my pleasure, Steve. Thank you. And a reminder, this podcast is available on the free C-SPAN radio app, online at cspan.org or wherever you download your favorite podcast. We thank you for listening.